Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, church. For those who may not know me, my name is Les Crawford. Uh, I'm one of the elders here, but I work full-time for an organization called the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And the reason I mention that is because we are entering into the prophetic section, particularly in the book of Daniel. And the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry is very focused on uh, what God is doing now and in the future, especially with respect to the nation of Israel. That's why we're the Friends of Israel. And we do have a table in the foyer with some resources. Uh, We have a magazine called Israel My Glory. And uh, I'm Scottish. And so when somebody says it's free, I'm very interested. My ears prick up. And so if you've never subscribed to Israel My Glory before as a magazine, then today is your lucky day because you can sign up for a 12-month subscription completely free of charge and without obligation. You'd receive six issues of the magazine. It comes out every month, uh, well, every two months, sorry, bi-monthly, and it will be delivered to your home address, wherever that may be. So all you have to do is fill out the form at the table, hand it to me, and we'll deal with it. In fact, my Greta Hutchison will deal with it because she's my offsider in the office. Our office is actually down at Edwardstown in the Edwardstown Community Centre. So we're a little bit distant from here. But if you want to visit us there, you're more than welcome. The office is open from 9 to 4 each day. So please take advantage of that after the service. Uh, Elizabeth and I will be at the table. And if you have any questions about the message too, you can certainly ask me about that. But my primary reason for being here today is to open God's Word. And if you have your Bible open, you might like to turn to Daniel chapter 7. It is a challenging chapter. uh, And hopefully I can make clear some of its content. And hopefully also see how relevant it is to each one of us here today. Uh, You know, we're living in uncertain times. Uh, The world in which we live is changing, uh, in some parts, rapidly. Uh, World religions like Islam is spreading, uh, in Western cultures especially, uh, and especially in Europe and the UK. Uh, The European Union is struggling with massive intakes of refugees. Uh, The United Kingdom is leaving the European Union. Well, at least that's what they're expecting to do. Seems a little bit of pushback on that. Russia is expanding its geography and its influence, uh, particularly in the Middle East, in uh, Syria and Iran. China is establishing its presence in the South Pacific, you know, one of our, of course, nearest neighbours. Uh, and that's causing a little bit of concern. Uh, they're doing that both economically and militarily and geographically. So they're really on the move. It wasn't that long ago that we were a bit worried about North Korea. Uh, Maybe we still are, but at the moment it seems a lot quieter. Uh, President Trump seems to have made some inroads uh, there. And of course the USA is changing its posture internationally. Uh, They're kind of pulling away from globalisation. They're kind of looking more at their own turf rather than the international turf. So you kind of wonder, you know, who's going to gain the ascendancy? You know, who's on the rise and who's on the decline? And... As that changing world scene occurs, some people are nervous. Some people are fearful. Uh, Maybe you're in that category today. Maybe you're not sure what the future holds. 
And I guess we might ask the question, has God said anything about this? Has God revealed anything about the world in which we live, both in the past, in the present, and in the future? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, in fact, Daniel chapter 7 is a launching point for gaining a significant insights as to what God is actually doing in the world. That the things that are happening in the world internationally, globally, nation by nation, even empire by empire, are not just accidental occurrences. They actually fit into God's plan and his program. So this chapter in the Old Testament is a really significant one, even though it's filled with quite difficult things and perhaps even bewildering things and odd things. Uh, I hope that by the end of the message you'll have a better understanding of what it's trying to communicate. Now, just to bring you up to speed, we've been in the book of Daniel for some time now. Uh, we began back in chapter 1 where we learned that Daniel was one of the exiles who was taken under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar from his homeland in Israel to the land of Babylon uh, as just a young lad, really, in his middle teens. And uh, he had several companions with him. We've seen some of the stories about them and we've seen the story of Daniel in the lion's den just recently. And so we're up to chapter 7. Uh, and we're given a timestamp, actually, in chapter 7. Uh, it tells us that this vision, this night experience of revelation that Daniel experienced was actually in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, this is some 50 years since Babylon had first entered into Israel and taken captive Daniel and his friends and others. So it's a significant time later. But around 550 BC, actually, in 539 BC, 10 years after this vision, Babylon is going to be overtaken by another empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Babylonian Empire will fall. And so the timing of these visions in this chapter really are significant for both Daniel and his people, Israel, but also for the Babylonians. Because this is going to reveal a procession of empires. It's going to show the future. Now, if you've been listening to the series, you've already had the experience of the writing on the wall, Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, you've already had Darius and the Medo-Persian reign coming to power and Daniel being falsely accused, well, actually not falsely accused, but accused with deception about disloyalty to him as the reigning emperor and thrown in the lion's den. Uh, those events are actually future to this. This is an advance of those events. Now, another interesting thing about the book of Daniel, you probably know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the book of Daniel, including this chapter, is written Aramaic. Now, Hebrew is the language of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Aramaic is the language of the Babylonians. And so Daniel is writing this vision out, recording it, so that someone like Belshazzar and any of the Babylonians can read it and be warned. Now we know that Belshazzar didn't take any notice of this material because even when the writing on the wall occurred for him, he didn't take much notice of that except to sort of submit and surrender to the inevitability of the fact that his empire was going to be crushed that evening, in fact. And so what this really tells us about God and his character is that God always wants humanity to know well in advance 
what will significantly impact their future, what will make a great deal of difference to them as communities and as individuals. Because God loves humanity. God wants the very best for humanity. He wants humanity to enjoy Him and all the good things that He gives throughout their lives and eternally. And so God gives an advance, 10 years here in advance, of the unfolding of the significant events that are going to occur, warning. And by doing that, he expects a positive response. What are we going to do with this advanced information? Are we going to ignore it? Are we going to reject it? Or are we going to respond to it well? That's the kind of God that we know and serve. So I trust that this morning, as you hear the message from this chapter, that you'll get a grip of what God is like, how he is working, and where we fit into that picture. Because God does graciously reveal future events, some of which are soon to occur, I believe, so that everyone who takes the revelation seriously can be prepared, well prepared for what is coming. And uh, if you are a, a Christian, to actually be confident and courageous in view of what the future holds. That's the good news for us. And so the chapter is in three sections. It has Daniel's vision of four beasts on the earth, which is a procession of human empires. It then has Daniel's vision of two beings in the heavens, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And then it has the visions that Daniel receives interpreted. Human empires fall, but God's kingdom remains. And so basically the theme of Daniel chapter 7 is that there's only one kingdom that remains. There's only one kingdom that lasts forever, and it is actually God's kingdom. So be sure that you're in the right kingdom. Be sure that you're a citizen of the kingdom that is everlasting and remains, not merely a citizen of an earthly kingdom. So let's have a look at these visions and their interpretation in the book of Daniel Chapter 7, verses 1 through to 8, as we see the vision. Now, the vision that Daniel receives is of impressive animals or animal-like creatures. There's a lion with eagle's wings. There's a bear. There's a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then there's this strong beast with iron teeth and ten horns that's destructive and awesomely powerful. And these are all arising out of the great sea. And the great sea scripturally normally means the realm of humanity, the peoples of the earth. So these are human kingdoms arising from humanity. But it does say that the four winds of heaven are stimulating the seas for this to occur. So all throughout this chapter, the message will be certainly human empires exist. Human empires take one from another. But ultimately, God is sovereign over them all. He is the one who is behind the scenes, in so many cases, bringing about the events that transpire here on earth. So this first beast, in verse 4, if you know anything about Babylonian history, if you've seen any images of archaeological discoveries or historical artifacts, you'll know that the lion with wings is the iconic image of Babylon. Uh, it was engraved on walls and doors. And so this first beast is the Babylonian Empire. 
And it's actually very accurate in its description of what had transpired in the past. Because when it says the loss of wings occurs, then an elevation of this beast, and then a grounding on two feet, then the addition of a human mind, this brings back Nebuchadnezzar. If you know the earlier chapters of Daniel, you know that he was the reigning monarch when the Babylonian Empire took over the known world. But he was an arrogant, proud ruler. God humbled him, gave him basically the mind of a beast so that he was out in the open field living like an animal. But then God mercifully restored him. He kept his kingdom in his absence, brought him back to stand and in fact, I believe, eventually redeemed him became one of God's own children. And so this description actually fits him very well, and it clearly identifies this beast as Babylon. Interestingly, the actions towards this beast indicate that its existence was enabled by a higher power. A higher power was dictating the destiny. In fact, if you read through the prophets like Jeremiah and so on, you'll read about God using these nations, these empires, in this case, to discipline Israel, his own people. Because Israel had been idolatrous. They had defected from God. They had pursued idols. They had left off of living well, morally, spiritually. And so God had judged them eventually. And Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument to do that. Now, Babylon's going to be judged eventually too, because they were not exactly a righteous nation or a righteous empire. So that introduces a second beast, a bear. And this represents the Medo-Persian Empire. It's pictured as rising to power like a bear would usually do from its side to an upright position. It's already bitten off three ribs. Probably refers to the conquest of Lydia, Egypt and Babylonia as the empire is expanding, as the empire is taking over once again the known world. Uh, the medo Persian Empire was again a very powerful empire. And they're called in this particular image to devour much flesh. In other words, finish off the carcass. You've got three ribs, get the rest. Complete the domination of the known world. But again, they're being commanded to do this. God is actually issuing out these commands. And it might be hard for us to comprehend that, but what has been Communicated here is that God is the sovereign God over all empires. This empire will supersede the Babylonian one. And Daniel actually experiences it personally because in Daniel 6, we have Daniel in the Medo-Persian Empire under Darius. Then we have the third beast. Here we have a leopard with four wings and four heads. A little bit weird. We recognize what a leopard is, but there's no leopard you've ever known with four wings and there's no leopard you've ever seen with four heads. So this beast is a very accurate and appropriate representation of the Greek Empire, which was established by Alexander the Great. Now, most of you would have heard of Alexander the Great, I hope, that at least it's included in your education somewhere. Certainly a very famous general and a very famous military leader. And his conquest of the known world, defeating the Medo-Persians, was incredibly swift, done in a matter of years, and he died quite young. And so his empire actually falls to his four generals, which well represents these four heads. And they divide the empire up, so it doesn't stay unified for very long. And the addition of wings to a leopard makes this a very swift and very powerful military force, which in fact history testifies to. 
And then dominion again is granted to this empire, which once again points to God's sovereignty over the nations in verse 6. Now you have to realize that this is actually mostly prophetic because this is in the first year of Belshazzar. So we're in the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel's been told that the next empire to come along is the Medo-Persians. Then he's been told that the next empire to come along are the Greeks. And then in the next beast, he's going to be told that the next empire to come along is the Roman Empire. This is hundreds of years in advance of these events. In fact, these were so spectacularly accurate that when Alexander the Great engaged with the Jewish leadership when he conquered Israel, they showed him these prophecies in the book of Daniel and said, we've been expecting you. Ah, how come? Well, here you are, you're here. You're in the book, not just here, but later as well. And he had a very favorable disposition to the Jewish people. Uh, In fact, when he built his capital, Alexandria, he populated it with a million Jews. That's one of the reasons why you have an Old Testament version called the Septuagint, the LXX, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament for Greek-speaking Jews, which primarily occurred because of Alexander's conquest and the Hellenization of the known world, including the Jewish people. So this is incredible that such clear information is being made available, and it's made available to Belshazzar. What's he going to do with it? He doesn't do what he should have done with it. So this fourth beast is revealed. and We'll have more information about the fourth beast and the interpretation because this is a very odd beast. It's different from the other ones in that it is more complex and it seems to be much more ferocious than the others as much as you can beat the Medo-Persians or you could beat the Greeks or even the Babylonians. See, the prominence of iron, the fearsome strength, the destructive power, this feats with the juggernaut of the Roman army. I mean, the Roman army smashed everything in its... What's the word for it? In its presence, in its path. And they crushed their enemies and maintained their hold over their enemies with an iron fist. They invented crucifixion. And crucifixion was designed to put the fear of the Roman Empire in anybody that would be a rebel. So they were cruel and they were powerful. And for hundreds of years, they were the dominant world power, even at the time of Jesus, as I'm sure you know. And interesting, in this picture of this future empire, it has ten horns. And then there's this little horn that rips out three other horns and becomes a main character, as we'll see at the latter part of the chapter. And this little horn is very significant because it rises to prominence and it has details of being human but full of pride. Now, speaking great things, which is not meaning that you know, he's really intelligent and has great ideas. It's actually puffing themselves up with pride. And we'll see more about that in the latter part of the chapter. Daniel's picture now shifts. He's seen things on earth with these four great beasts. Now he sees things in heaven, a vision of two beings, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. It's really significant that this shift occurs because it reinforces that everything is actually being directed from above. 
This isn't just accidental human activities. These are orchestrations of divine plan. Very significant shift. Who is in control of the world? And so we see the Ancient of Days. A throne is set up. Thrones, in fact, in court. And this Ancient of Days enters, takes his seat. And then we have the description of the Ancient of Days. We have things like purity and wisdom and authority. This is God the Father. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel who is sitting, sitting on this throne. And the focus is actually judgment. There are myriads, thousands upon thousands of witnesses, attendant witnesses, and then there are court records. The books are opened in verse 10. And then we have this little interlude where the consequence of opening the books is shown to Daniel back on earth. As Daniel keeps looking, he sees the outcome of the judgment. The fourth beast is killed, utterly destroyed, including its leader, in verse 11. And then the other beasts lose their dominion that were obviously cooperating in this empire, but they don't lose their existence. And then we return to the heavenly scene, and Daniel sees another character enter the scene, one like a son of man who then approaches or comes to the Ancient of Days. So this is a different person. Uh, this is actually a messianic reference. Uh, this is actually Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. This is the second person of the Godhead, God's Son. And he's given authority, comprehensive authority over all humanity, dominion and glory and a kingdom. Every portion of humanity should serve him. Because his kingdom, unlike these other kingdoms, which have a time and then are overtaken and replaced, and then another time and overtaken and replaced, this kingdom is eternal. This kingdom is indestructible. This kingdom will not pass away. This kingdom will not be destroyed. It has no use-by date. You know, you go to the supermarket, you want to check the use-by date, don't you? Well, all these kingdoms have use-by dates. And the nature of this kingdom is really significant. When you look at its description, it actually has national and linguistic characteristics. It's within an earthly context, has geographical and political aspects, uh, just like the other kingdoms do. So we're not talking about some pie-in-the-sky, ethereal, spiritual kingdom out there, separate from the earth, some heavenly kind of kingdom. This is on the earth. This is grounded where we live, where we exist today. And that's very significant. But its unique features are its duration and its quality. Very different from these other kingdoms. Everlasting and a kingdom of righteousness as against the kingdom of wickedness. And its fulfillment will be on the earth. And uh, we don't have time to look at all the passages, but it's going to be clear that that is actually Jesus' reign on the earth when he returns with the saints for Israel at the end of the tribulation period. That's when this is all going to come to fruition. Well, this staggering amount of dramatic images has alarmed Daniel. So as we see in verse 15, he's, whoa, anxious. The visions of his head alarmed. So if you get anxious or alarmed, you're just in the same company. I mean, Daniel did, so it's okay for you to. But you see, he seeks a solution for his concern, for his anxiety, his alarm. He wants to know what's going on. So he approaches one of those who were 
around there, standing there, and asked him about the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And so he affirms what I've already told you, that these beasts represent four kings. So we're talking not about weird things. We're actually talking about just human activities here on earth. But as the question is answered, and the identity of the four beasts is given a little more clarity, and the angel adds that their kingdoms are going to be superseded by God's kingdom, in verse 18 he says that this kingdom is going to be given to the saints of the Most High. Wow. I mean, it seems that the kingdom was to be Messiah's. It seemed like the kingdom was to be God's kingdom. And now it's been given to the saints of the Most High. And it will be theirs for eternity. So this is not some temporary situation either. So my immediate question is, who are the saints? Now when you use the word saint in modern conversation, people might think of a religious saint. Uh, Maybe one that's associated with, say, Roman Catholicism. Uh, But that's not what's in view here. Remember, this message is for Daniel and his people. It's for the nation of Israel. And these events are going to transpire at a time when Israel is reconstituted as a nation. Ah, guess what? Israel's been reconstituted as a nation. That's miraculous, by the way. You don't have to read about the history of that to know, wow, that is amazing. No nation has ever recovered their language, has ever recovered their identity, has ever recovered their location in the history of the world apart from this nation, Israel. And so we're not talking about what happened a 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. We're actually talking about the things that are going to happen now in the future. So who are these saints? Well, in context, they're actually those believers who are believers in the tribulation period. They will be Gentiles. They will be Jewish. They won't actually be you if you're a saint today. And you are if you're a believer in Jesus. Because God will take us to be with himself. Jesus will come and take us to be with himself prior to these events unfolding. But nevertheless, we will inherit this kingdom because when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, all the saints, both those who are church saints, both those who are tribulation saints, and both those who are Old Testament saints, they will all inherit this kingdom one day. Now, again, Daniel is intrigued by this other horn and these details of the fourth beast. So in verses 19 and 20, he kind of makes more inquiries. Um, And he also has an additional vision. There's an additional scene that's given in verse 21 on. And this is where the latest horn, this little horn, is warring with the saints. So there's a time period when this ruler, who's taken out three of these other rulers, is actually on the warpath against God's people. That's not now. It will occur in the future, as much as there are some warpaths on planet Earth against God's people today. So who is this personage? Uh, Now, he only temporarily prevails over them because the Ancient of Days comes and renders judgment for the saints in verse 22, and then the saints receive the kingdom. Now, we heard about the Ancient of Days already in this chapter. The Ancient of Days was God the Father. But this Ancient of Days is not God the Father. 
this is actually Jesus the Messiah. And so you go, hang on a minute. I'm confused. Um, how many different persons are there here? Well, we've confessed our faith at the beginning of our service, didn't we? And we've confessed that we believe in God, who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is not surprising that Jesus is called the Ancient of Days, just like the Father is called the Ancient of Days, because they're both eternal, because they're both God. And by the way, this is not odd. You read in the book of Isaiah, that when it talks about the coming Messiah, it says that he is the everlasting Father, mighty God, Prince of Peace. Uh, all that God is, is true of all of the persons of the Godhead. Now, I can't explain the mystery of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being one God, yet three separate persons. Just as much as I can't explain the mystery of the Incarnation, that the one true God in the person of the Son has become Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I can't explain how that can happen, but the Scriptures teach it as truth. And that's my obligation to teach it also and to believe it as one of God's children. And so here we have equality at a level which is hard for us to comprehend. But he now gives further explanation of this fourth beast. It represents a unique kingdom that will devour the whole earth and will be dominant and destructive. Now, all of these ancient kingdoms did occupy a certain portion of the earth, but they didn't occupy the whole earth. I mean, the Roman Empire, as extensive as it was, I mean, it got all the way to Britain. It got away, all the way to the Middle East, but it didn't get to America. And it didn't get to Australia. They didn't get to Indonesia, didn't really get to China. There's so many parts of the world that weren't dominated by the Roman Empire. But the revised Roman Empire isn't going to be limited by Europe or the Middle East or North Africa. It will be global. Nobody will be outside of the influence and the impact of this future yet-to-be-realized empire. It's going to devour the whole earth. And so these ten horns are ten kings that reign together. So these are not succession of kings. It's not like one after another, after another, after another. They're all at the same time. And then one rises up as an eleventh king who then knocks out three kings to establish his place of authority. That's actually the Antichrist. He's described again later in Daniel when you get to the later chapters. But if you read the book of Revelation, you'll get the best picture of all. And so you want to read Daniel 7 through to 12 in concert with Revelation 6 through to 19 especially. Now, I know that's a hard task, and we're not going to try and do it today, so you can relax. But it is an important one if we're going to fully comprehend what God has revealed about our future, our earth's future. Uh, he will take control, this little horn that becomes a great horn, and he will direct his energy toward God and his people. He'll reframe the culture. Now, our culture is changing now. It's being reframed now. But this will be a radical reframing. A little bit like the French Revolution. When the French Revolution took place, they tried to totally eliminate Christianity. Even change from a seven-day week to a ten-day week. It never ever worked, of course. But they tried to reinvent the culture to such an extent that it was completely disconnected from its historical past. This kind of ruler will seek to make sure that everything revolves around him and that the world is focused on him, not connected to their historical past. Reframing the culture. 
And he will seem to win the day. He seems to be the boss. He's put everything under his feet, as it were. He's conquered all before him. But that would be a mistake because his time is short-lived, as we see. He's blasphemous and he relentlessly persecutes God's people to extinction. So if you think that Christianity is under persecution now, the believers in this time period are going to be globally persecuted. There'll be no place on planet Earth apart from God's sovereign protection that is safe. You know, Australia is a relatively safe place to be as a Christian, isn't it? I mean, you might get a little bit of a hard time at work, but you know, nobody's arresting you and putting you to death. That is happening for some of our brothers and sisters in the world today. But this is global. We're not talking about just one locality. We're talking about the entire world. It will be difficult to be a believer in this time. But not impossible. Because his reign is limited to a time, times, and half a time. That's actually three and a half years. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll find that there's a seven-year period. In fact, Daniel will talk about a week in Daniel 9. I don't know who's doing that message, but it'll be a blessing when you hear it. The one week that remains is seven years, seventh, a seventh. And in that time period, Antichrist will actually be in full control at the halfway point. And that's when everything goes pear-shaped. You know, if you have a satanically inspired character with world domination, it'll make Hitler look like he's a nursery rhyme character. And believe me, if you study the Holocaust, you know how wicked and evil that man and that regime was. Absolutely devastating. But his time is limited. And uh, the New Testament says necessarily so for the elect to survive. The heavenly court will be convened, judgment will be determined, his reign will be ended, and his loss of dominion will be final and permanent. No recovery from this. There will not be another world empire after this one. This is the last final one from human sources. God's empire will be the final and eternal one. And then again, in verse 27, it tells us the saints receive the eternal kingdom, which includes all of these earthly kingdoms. So if you thought that your heavenly destiny was to be on a cloud somewhere, you know, strumming that harp and singing some choruses, that is not what it's going to be. And you're probably going, whew, I'm glad about that. It's very tangible. It's very concrete. It's the earth that we finally inherit under our King Jesus. But a new renewed earth, a better earth, a perfect earth. And the millennial kingdom is when this will actually be initiated and then the full heavens, new heavens and new earth will subsequently occur. Jesus is the Prince of Peace and until he comes, there is no peace on planet earth. Jesus is the King of Kings and until he comes, all these other kings are going to mess up. He's the perfect ruler. We need him. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer actually, you know, our kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're actually praying for Jesus to come. Because it's the only way that's ever going to happen comprehensively is when he is on the throne of this world. You know, it may have appeared for a period of time that Antichrist was the one in control. It may have appeared that these world empires, the human empires, were the ones that were in control. But nothing could be further from the truth. And if you align with the wrong empire, that is a big mistake. 
You see, what Daniel is teaching us in this chapter, as he's had this revelation of this procession of the empires, of the heavenly scene, of the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man, and the other Ancient of Days coming to earth, and the completion of this history, he's telling us that God is in control over all human activity. And even the rise and fall of empires, and the final empire, hostile to God and his people, they are under his sovereignty. Just as it was when those evil Sanhedrin representatives gave a verdict of guilty on Jesus, brought him to Pilate to offer him up as a crucified criminal, Paul knows, so excuse me, Luke knows in Acts chapter 2 that that was determined by God, even though it was accomplished by wicked hands. God uses evil for good. It doesn't mean evil is good. God is sovereign over all human activity, the smallest and the largest of things. Now, this has impacted Daniel significantly. I mean, he's seen this dramatic vision of all of these impressive images and then this explanation, which is very relevant for him, and he's shocked by it. In the final verse, it says, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. You know, when you enter into shock, the blood drains from your face, from your head, from your brain. You can get a little unstable and even faint. And this is what's happening to Daniel, but he doesn't collapse under this because it goes on to say, I kept the matter in my heart. He's still standing, even though everything around him seems to be falling apart because he knows something. He knows that the message is clear. You know, when the prophets ministered to Israel, they ministered in two primary ways. First way was to say, hey guys, get your act together. You're out of alignment with God and judgment is coming if you don't change. The second thing was, your future has hope. Your future is positive in the one whom you are to worship and to serve. Your future has hope. And Daniel is getting hope for the future. He's getting a picture that one day, and he wouldn't have known how long this was going to take, and we still don't really know how long this is going to take, one day, all things will be made right. And God's people will be the inheritors of an eternal kingdom. So that no matter what you're experiencing right now, in the very present time, whether it's confusion, whether it's opposition, whether it's difficulty, whether it might be a lack of understanding or a sense of bewilderment, or fear or anxiety, the future is certain. Read the end of the book of Revelation. God wins. And God's people Win. Now, that doesn't make us better than anybody else. The only reason we're on the winning side is because of grace. It's because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross of Calvary. We're not in Christ because of our goodness. We're in Christ because of His goodness. So anybody here this morning can be a participant in this eternal kingdom. In fact, I think that's part of the message. So it's a challenging chapter. It's got things that are hard to comprehend it's also hard, well, where do we fit in? How do we apply this? But it is full of hope. Because it tells us that no matter how bad things get, no matter how horrible life seems to be, 
a sovereign God is still in control. And if you belong to him, then you are safe in his hands. Now that may mean that you will be killed for your faith. Not likely to happen soon in Adelaide, but it does happen to believers in the world today. But death is no threat. I mean, death is a doorway to this future kingdom. It's a doorway to the presence of Jesus. Now, I'm not looking forward to a cruel death. Don't get me wrong. I'm not masochistic. I'm not looking for some kind of pain and suffering in my future. But I'm confident that no matter what happens to me, I'm safe in God's hands. And that's the most important. You see, the saints of the Most High prevail in the end. They receive the reward of an eternal kingdom despite any suffering that they may experience in the other kingdoms, especially the last one. And you too can be a saint. It doesn't take performing a miracle and being recognized by a church. All it takes is trusting in the person of the Lord Jesus, who is our Savior and Lord. If you haven't done this, you can do it today. It's only a prayer away. It's all it is. It sounds very simple, I know, but it is the truth. The Bible says that if we confess Jesus as Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be brought into God's family and be a part of this eternal kingdom. And if you're a Christian today, let me finish with this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord in our knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain because it contributes to an eternal kingdom. There's nothing vain about that. Whereas if you're contributing to a temporary kingdom, very, very empty. You can't take anything with you. When life ends, it's eternity one way or another in God's presence or away from his presence. And I hope for all of you it's in God's presence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you want us to know in advance so that we can be prepared. And I ask that everyone in this room can be prepared today, that your spirit would prepare us. Uh, if for the first time being prepared to trust in the Lord Jesus, to confess our need of a saviour, to seek forgiveness for our rebellion, for our defection from God, and as your children to be confident and courageous because of who you are and what you've promised to do. Lord, how great a God we serve. How wonderful is your power, but even more wonderful is your grace that has brought us life. So we pray for your grace to be on us today in the Lord Jesus, our King and our Saviour's name. Amen.